Hello, everyone, and welcome to the LifeSphere podcast, where we aim to shed light on the significance of innovation in life sciences, the people, the challenges, and success stories, all while educating, inspiring, and empowering professionals. And today, I am honored to have as my guest, Dr. Renee Stewart, PhD, co-founder and chief scientific officer at LaVolta Pharmaceuticals. Renee's been at LaVolta since November in 2013, and most recently, the CEO of IMC Biotechnology. She's a biological scientist with varied and deep expertise in research and medical labs, clinical development and tech transfer, and a very broad range of experience in business, academics, and nonprofit endeavors. LaVolta Pharmaceuticals is a global pharmaceutical company that is pioneering and delivering therapies to transform the lives of patients. They are developing novel treatments for a broad range of illnesses, including those patients suffering from diseases associated with rheumatology, immunology, and cancer. LaVolta's lead product, Volt01, is a novel zoldronic acid combination that has demonstrated an enhanced therapeutic index, leading to a better efficacy and safety, and is currently in phase three clinical trials. Renee has a BS in biology from Missouri State University, and her PhD in cell and molecular biology from St. Louis University. Renee, I'm really excited to have you today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So Renee, I know um, you've spent a very um, broad uh, swath of time in your work. Um, And I think maybe we start just talking a little bit about some of the challenges I think that um, the pharmaceutical industry is experiencing. Um, that, you know, drug development is a very long process and it's very expensive. And maybe a lot of folks aren't aware of that, but um, that there's also a lack of effective new um, treatments um, to solve the problems that uh, consumers and patients are having. And that the risk of pharmaceutical development is becoming greater because of the very high upfront costs to develop, test, and release new products. And many products fail in the clinical stage, a clinical trial stage, or just don't gain FDA approval. And that's just a huge challenge. And, and, and there's a lot of cost associated with an unsuccessful product. You are absolutely right about that, Kathleen. And th- that is where I think a, a company like LaVolta uh, has, can really play a part. Because as, as you said, drug development is extremely expensive. And what we've done with our lead product, Volt01, is to take two drugs that we actually know a lot about as a uh, as a, a, a life science community, combine those into a novel therapeutic for a new disease. So in our case, we are looking at osteoarthritis. And again, as you mentioned, there are many diseases out there where there are not really good options for treatment. And and I think osteoarthritis is really one of those. Um, we don't have anything that affects the underlying disease. We All we can do really is try to control the pain mm-hmm. until the patient and the insurance company is ready to do a, a joint replacement where that's available. Right. And they're not inexpensive either. And they, no, they, they, they certainly that. have um, challenges with them. Um, there's sometimes a perception that that the solutions are magical and oftentimes they are not. <laughs> <laughs> You're exactly right about that. Right. 
So what you talk about um, what your um, company's working on, um, how uh, La Volta standing out from others in the industry? There's a lot of different ways, I think maybe innovation um, and some other new possibilities that you guys are looking at. Absolutely. So I, I think where um, where where I like to think we are innovative is really in in the thought process that we bring to the the process of drug development. Um, so just as an as an example, I'll tell you the story of how we discovered that Levo, that Volta One was useful for osteoarthritis. That was not our plan. <laughs> I'd like to say it was, but it wasn't. Um, we were actually developing sort of a, a better mousetrap type of drug. And in the proof of concept trial, um, those patients who also had osteoarthritis uh, came back and said, yeah, I was fine with it, but I haven't walked this well in years. Oh, wow. So we said, okay, that's interesting. Perhaps we have an osteoarthritis drug. Um, did the next round of uh, trial to take a look at that. And we do indeed have an osteoarthritis drug. So, um, you know, I, I feel like part of our innovation was in, in realizing that and realizing the, um, the, the massive good that could be done across that patient population with something that was really pretty straightforward and will be pretty easy to administer and will only require a once a year administration. Wow. That's pretty awesome. And, you know, I think the conversation starts with a somewhat rigorous requirement to define unmet needs and, and kind of go into all of that. And then all of a sudden you find out during some of the, the trial process, hey, wait a minute, this might this might be better at something else, which I think is amazing. Um, and I think that's part of the whole process of the testing and the trials. Um, I think when you're talking about innovation, um, and the way that that I think a lot of um, the healthcare and life science industry is embracing technology um, to kind of help them do things better, faster, in no way replacing the people, but kind of optimizing workflow processes and things like that. You know, there's a lot of conversation about artificial intelligence and, and machine learning and those kinds of technologies. And, and I wonder, um, if you see that kind of as a benefit uh, into, you know, your space and possibly even um, that pre-commercialization space, you know, R&D and, and the clinical trial space, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity, but I'd love your perspective. I, I think so, too. I think we're, we're still in the process, at least from where I sit, uh, we're still in the process of learning how to really most effectively integrate those, but with certainly something that we need to consider and to look at. Um, one one place that I I feel like we might particularly implement down the road is in looking at real world data and maybe identifying or refining the markets for for our products. Mm -hmm. We have done a little bit of work in that real world data space, and and one of the challenges is that. The data, it, you know, it's only as good as the data that you get. And sometimes we don't have all the data from all the populations that we'd really like to have a full solution for. 
Um, and, and that makes, I think, you know, trying to get the therapies to market to serve the greatest patient population somewhat more challenging. Um, and um, I wonder how, how do you guys view, um, I think the data is amazing and it's providing an awful lot of good, but I wonder if do you have any thoughts on, you know, as far as challenges go, wh what do you think you might see as the most urgent challenges in your space, you know, as you're looking at, I'm sure there's a vast uh, and wide opportunity area, but the challenges can be um, really urgent in some cases. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. So are we, are we talking in the technological space or in the, the disease space? I was thinking in the disease space because hmm. technology can only help once it knows where it's needed. Yeah. You know, it follows kind of it. It can be innovative in some cases, but really technology is in support of some 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 greater good there. Great. Um, so I'll I'll really confine comments to the osteoarthritis space since that is is where we are with our lead product right now. And the there are two main things that are badly badly needed in the osteoarth osteoarthritis space. One is effective pain control. Osteoarthritis is painful and it's a chronic pain and it's and it lasts for years. Mm -hmm. And we, I'll, what we have right now, I mean, it's, it's not that we don't have anything. We have both um, over-the-counter and prescription analgesics, um, and and those in, that it does include um, the opioid tramadol, mm. which can be effective. Um, and we also have some um, assistive devices that will help people take some of the weight off of affected joints. We have um, intraarticular injections that will help with the pain to to a certain extent but the um you know the analgesics come with their own problems um not least of which is that they eventually fail yeah. uh, um, but long-term use is is an issue as well there are liver issues of course we all know that the issues with long-term opioid use mm -hmm. and the um the injections we have are for are with um, hyaluronic acid, which work great for some people and not so great for others, mm -hmm. and um, corticosteroids, which again work great for a few months for most people, but may actually contribute to joint degradation. Mm -hmm. So we just don't have really good options. Mm -hmm. Then of course the one of the biggest things for osteoarthritis is that we don't have anything that modifies the underlying disease. So right now, the best that we can do is try to control the pain until <laughs> we can replace the joint, right? Right. right. <laughs> Which is, right. It's kind of sad. Um, but w that's where we think Levolta's Volta 1 is going to really make a difference for patients. Because we're seeing pain, really excellent pain relief up to um, almost 12 months in some cases on, on a single infusion. And we also believe that it's affecting the underlying disease. So in, in phase two, when we looked at the bone marrow lesions that often develop due to bone remodeling during the course of osteoarthritis, we actually saw a reduction in bone marrow lesions with the use of Volt-01. Wow. So we, we really feel like we're going to make a difference for patients. That's amazing. That's great. 
because you know you're right it's the underlying root cause that sometimes isn't solved and there's just kind of sort of like um you know the the side effect or or the problem that arises because of it that you're treating um and that can be you know it can be um difficult as far as continuing quality of life and and all those other things right um yeah Actually, so, can, can, I, can I address that, that quality of life that you, you brought up? Because I think that's really important for osteoarthritis patients. I, I, I feel like so often people have sort of just accepted osteoarthritis as a, a, a part of growing old. Yeah. And, and, and to a certain, ex, a certain extent, you know, it, it does develop as a part of more birthdays. <laughs> But but I think we have to really understand how just how debilitating this disease can be because there's the chronic pain and anyone who's had chronic pain knows how debilitating that can be to just overall in your life. There's the loss of mobility. Mm-hmm. Osteoarthritis is the leading cause of disability in people over 60 years of age. So many people can't work any longer. Right. They can't get around. They can't. It's not even like they can't go hiking. Right. They can't do their daily activities. Right. Anymore. right. And that loss of mobility contributes to other comorbidities like cardiovascular disease and obesity. And mm-hmm. the whole combination feeds in to um, that that decrease in quality of life and sometimes leads to clinical depression. I was going to say exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So There's it really is interaction a, there, yeah. Yeah, it it really is a um a life altering disease. Mm-hmm. And I think um to your point, you know, when you look at some of the other um the other challenges that occur, you know, as you get more birthdays, one of the things that's the best for you is to keep moving, right? And if you can't move, exactly. um and I, it's probably I don't know what the stats are, but I'm sure the knees are probably one of the top affected areas because of weight and everything else. Just general use. Right. Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. So that whole challenge is just, you know, a cyclical decline that just contributes to the other the other things that you can no longer do. And, you know, I, I often think that. um to your point, it, it can contribute to to depression if you can't get out and take care of yourself go do what you used to do or, 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 or where you need to go certainly is to have an impact. Um, and the not being able to work. I mean, you know, for those of us that are fortunate enough not to have to be outside or do any kind of sort of heavy, uh, you know, lifting and those kinds of things. But, um, yeah, it's, I think it's a great point. So the, um, so where you are with this, what, we talked about how long it takes to kind of get a product to market. How how long is your horizon or timeline there? We need to do finish off two phase three studies. So mm-hmm. um, if if we had first patient in tomorrow, it would be two to two and a half years. We'd be on okay. the market. Okay, that's actually kind of promising when we talk about the timeline for these kinds of things. That's pretty interesting. And then. As you move out and start looking to, um, you know, you're going to go into to launch and commercialization. Obviously, quality is a big part of of what it is when you have therapies like this. 
And I think um, it's it's not that it's a new focus or that it's a big focus, but quality by by design and all these kind of best practices and getting the products out to the patients effectively, safely, and all those kinds of things. Um, I just wonder if you have some thought or perspective on that. Um, it's so important um, to, to get it right, but it's also important to get it right every time. <laughs> I completely agree with you. <laughs> We're on the same page here, Kathleen. Um, yes, I, I, I think that, that that idea of quality really has to be a, a foundation, a core foundational principle in everything that we do. Otherwise, I mean, if we don't, if we don't, we just end up, you know, redoing, re-verifying, you know, right. finding out we've gone down the wrong path because we didn't do it right the first time. And that's just, that's frustrating and wasteful. And um, yes, yeah, so we do it right, do it the first time, make sure our SOPs are in order, make sure our protocols are in order, make sure we're not doing all of those, um, those changes in the protocols as we go through because we didn't think through it right the first time. You know, uh, yeah, making sure that our our manufacturing is is properly done, properly put in place, properly executed. Um, so yes, I I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, and I'm sure you've gathered a lot of that uh, knowledge along the way of your career path, and and some of it you do learn by doing. Um, I think that while education is amazing, the doing part of it, I think, really brings uh, a lot of perspective. And not everyone, in fact, nearly everyone I've spoken to has not taken that straight line path from, you know, sixth grade science class to PhD and uh, entrepreneur and chief science officer. So, um, and it's always interesting to hear, you know, how did you get to hear what what were what what led you? What was what was inspirational? But then, you know, what was it that maybe you had a pivotal point where you're like, this is absolutely what I, I want to do now that I've come across this or I worked here and then I found an opportunity or a conversation or maybe some a role model, something. And not everyone has like a, a, a lightning bolt moment, but, <laughs> you know, so, it, it, they usually get there. Yeah, exactly. And learn so, quite a bit. Um, yeah. I, I, I will say that um no, I didn't have a lightning bolt moment. <laughs> um what I did have was um a business partner who was also my husband who really wanted to start a pharmaceutical company. And he wanted me to run it. Wow, big goal. And, and um I wasn't sure that I wanted to do this, but um, you know, we'll give it a whirl. And I did. And a few years in, I realized I love this. I, I love being an entrepreneur. I love startup companies. I love the excitement, the thinking, the, the energy in this entire process. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a lot of people think when you talk about um, life sciences companies, I don't think people always think that they are startups, that 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 they're not give, they don't come with a giant you know, staff and, and you really have to probably wear 10 hats or 15 hats, right? right? Like you might have a title, but you're also probably taking the trash out and making sure that the lab lights are turned off and watching the financials. And I, I think that's that's a big thing that maybe not everyone gets to experience um, 
when they're talking about where they think they want to go. Um, and that I, I find, I, th I think it's exciting. So maybe you could just add a little bit more about the entrepreneurial part, because I don't think that gets talked about as much as it could. Um, sure. So you've got the technical or science background, but maybe how do you acquire that information or skill? So for me, it was just, you know, jumping into the fire and mm -hmm. and just doing it. And and I, you know, I, I joke when I see those lists of of all the things that you shouldn't do as a startup <laughs> company. I'm like, wow, I think I've hit pretty much all of those. <laughs> <laughs> you need to write the book, right? <laughs> If it was a recipe book, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, interesting. But exciting, right? Like Oh, absolutely. I have learned so much, so much mm -hmm. over the last 10 or 15 years. And I wonder, um, so one of the things that I think makes work not work uh, is if it actually, you know, it contributes to what it is that you think you wanted to be here for. Do you learn something? Does it fulfill something in you that you've wanted to kind of, you know, I don't want to get dramatic, but, you know, does it fulfill things that you're thinking about from from your perspective of why do you why do you do what you do every day? Why do I get out of bed? Um, and, and I think that's what creates uh, what I think people see as 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 passion to 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 do the the stuff that this industry can have a lot of not positive outcomes, you know, in many cases, you know, and we just work to change that needle just a little bit farther north so that we're getting one more outcome that's better than the last. Um, yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. And I think as we're looking at, at sort of going back to um, the comment that you made earlier about not really knowing what you want to do when you're in sixth grade or mm -hmm. or not appreciating the path that you're going to follow to get mm -hmm. here. Um, I always feel like there are a couple of questions to ask ourselves. One is, as I'm looking at something about deciding, do I want to do that? Should I should I do that? Should I not do that? And I'm, I guess one of the questions is, is it, will it be useful? Will I, yeah. like you said, move that needle? Will I learn something? Will I gain new skills? Will it be useful? And then the other question is, and again, it's kind of getting a little esoteric here, but will it feed my soul? Right. Yeah. Is there something about this that that makes me feel like a better person? Mm -hmm. and yeah, and I think that's very important. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think, you know, if either one of those is true, then it's definitely worth thinking about. If both are true, then you should jump in with both feet. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe um, one of the things that I've heard uh, a lot of women who have been in or near uh, roles like yours, um, it's very important to think about the next generation. What what are we doing to make sure that we can continue this good work and make it possible for the next generation to contribute. One of the topics that I hear a lot about um, is the STEM programs and, and that we really need to kind of focus on providing the framework for success. You can't 
you know, you can't graduate with a PhD in cell biology if you didn't take any science before you went to college. It's very difficult to get there. So I think that's very important. And what I've seen in in kind of the work that you're doing is, and I'm going to shift the conversation to kind of outside your work world, is um, the women in bio organization. Um, I know you're beginning or you're winding down uh, your role as the chapter president for women in bio in the greater Philadelphia area. And I just like to hear a little bit about, you know, has this organization kind of fulfilled those two questions that you just mentioned a little bit before and maybe comment a little bit on the the way that these organizations are kind of creating that framework for the next for the next generation. I don't know that we had them maybe back when we were starting. I I didn't find them back, you know, when I was a postdoc. Mm-hmm. And I'm I've been I to 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 answer your question about did women in bio fulfill those two questions for me? Absolutely. And and in ways that I again didn't anticipate that it would. Um, I ended. I joined Women in Bio. I think about the first year after the Philadelphia chapter was established, and found it to be probably well. It was the most warm and welcoming group of people that I had ever interacted with in a professional capacity. And so I kept going, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, eventually, I wanted to be more involved. So I went on to the leadership team, first in membership, and now, of course, worked my way up to chapter chair, which has just been an amazing, uh, an amazing responsibility. And I'm, I'm really happy to say that some of the things that I've been involved in helping the chapter to develop, I really feel like speaks to just what you were talking about in that women helping women, raising up that, helping to, to raise that next generation and and you know help them not make help them not have to have some of the experiences that we had perhaps <laughs> so some of the things that we've done in women in bio is um while i was chair we um developed we call it our maps program so maps stands for mentors advisors peers and sponsors um but under the current maps chair kate duffy um they have developed what we're calling mentor circles. So it's a group of one mentor with three mentees. They run a program where they meet biweekly for a period of three months with the option of continuing on into the next program if if they so choose. And the feedback that we're getting is that that has been very successful. It's the groups are small enough that they can really address fairly, um, I won't say intimate, but maybe a little bit thorny problems mm-hmm. um, and, and really get some some good, solid advice from either the mentor themselves or or even sometimes the peer mentoring is is almost as valuable. So that's mm-hmm. really been a, a successful program. And, and I'm thrilled to say that that will be continuing on uh, into awesome. the next year. That's awesome. That's then really the, great. Yeah, it, yeah, it really has been a good program. Kate's, yeah. Kate and her team have done a, a fantastic job. Then the other thing that we developed 
uh, during my time on leadership was um, we extended our YWIB program. So YWIB is Young Women in Bio, and it um, works with girls in middle or high school. And we were fortunate to have this just incredibly driven um, ambassador. So the ambassador program is high school girls that come on, come and work with the, with the, uh, the chapters uh, YWIB committee. Um, and this young woman said, I really want to do like experiments. And so she worked with a professor at the Fox Chase Cancer Center and they developed these kits containing fruit flies that they can take into the school and and help the students run real actual science experiments using mm. these fruit flies. Mm. So the students, you know, they they learn the theory behind the experiment. Yeah. They they learn how to how to handle the flies and how to collect the data and handle the data afterwards. So wow. I, I yeah, I'm I'm really excited about that this program. That is awesome. That is so, very awesome. Yeah. You need like a news show on this. I that, love it. That's, a, that's amazing. That That's really awesome because I think that's what's inspirational to them, that they're doing something, that that, yeah. that it's a real world. You know, we, talk, we talked earlier about real world data, but they're getting a real world experience. They are getting a real world and, and, a, and a, not just a real world experience, but a very relevant experiment experience. Right. right? People still do significant research with fruit flies mm -hmm. and i think that's the thing that's that's just so cool that's awesome that's really great i'm making taking some notes here because i think this is worthy of a little bit more publicity um i think that these types of programs kind of um both at, at the at the multiple layers right so you've got the folks that are in work the folks that have a lot more experience and then you've got the the going down and reaching to the 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 schools and and bringing that visibility um in a way that is extremely relevant to your point um and it's it's it, it resonates with them you know, it's textbooks are great and it's good to learn formulas and theories. But if you can actually see what you're going to be doing and see that it has a real positive outcome and there is some impact, I think that that drives participation and it keeps the interest. Um, there are some stats out there that are um, that are a little bit uh, concerning. And that is by seventh grade, the majority of, um, you know, those ladies looking to go forward into high school. Um, it's more than 50% choose not to continue in science and engineering, technology, or math. And so to keep that interest, to make it something worthy of their attention in a way that they can see themselves um, producing meaningful work, I think is really important. So that's awesome. That's really great. From the other side, I think um, it's my understanding that I know the National Women in Bio also has uh, an e-women in bio uh, program. And I think um, some of what we've talked about is that we might be trying to kind of bring that, uh, add that to the Philadelphia chapter as to get just yet another opportunity for this collaboration and sort of sharing, um, you know, and again, sharing across the spectrum, I guess, of the life cycle of, of being a person in the life sciences and science. Um, so I think that's kind of exciting. Absolutely. We, we're very excited about establishing an executive women in bio group 
in the Philadelphia chapter. Uh, I think Philadelphia is absolutely ripe for that sort of organization. There's so many talented, successful women in this region that I, you know, we should all be getting together. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's a little bit tough when <laughs> when you do have to go to work too. But I, I agree this this cross conversation where you know you can, you know, life science is a very broad category, um, and there's many verticals. And Philadelphia has so much to contribute in these verticals because there's just so much talent, and there are so many very successful startups coming out of the Philadelphia area. Uh, I, th- I think it's just a, I think it's a great opportunity to just keep that conversation going and kind of create that, you know, it's just yet another um, it's another group to have conversation because that, as you get farther up, becomes more isolated versus less. And having those conversations about experience and, and to your point, how do I handle this situation? In many Absolutely. cases, it's brand new. You've never even come across it. Who would have thought we'd have a pandemic? Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, some people did, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's the kind of thing where I think these, you know, meeting people where they are in their career point or their path. Uh, and I think this is really what I think um, all of these organizations are doing great service for. Um so I guess just to lighten things up a little bit and, and maybe um, just chat a little bit about you, Renee, um, is there anything maybe that um, you would do if you weren't doing what you're doing, you know, running a professional organization, running a company or two, um, if you just had time for Renee? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Actually, what I would do, I, I over the past few years, I've sort of gotten into Tai Chi and Qigong, mm-hmm. and um, I find that I really love it. I love the that moving meditation sort of thing, and mm-hmm. I would love to share it with people. I think that would be great, and and I feel like that adds to the whole person. Absolutely. You, you know, I mean, and that is kind of what life sciences and healthcare is about, the totality of the person, not just one piece or another piece. Um, and I think that helps to bring so, some some other holistic sort of care, um, which is really awesome. So um, I know we're coming up here on um, on time, but I am just so excited um, to have had you on today, Renee. The conversation's awesome. I think what you're doing is just truly amazing. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time out today to to talk with us. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to be here and, and have time to talk with you. All right, Renee, thank you so much. And I'm hoping to see you in the near future. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of LifeSphere, where we talk with leaders in the life science industry about what inspires them and how we all can work together because the patient is waiting. Please find us on Spotify, Pandora, and iHeartRadio. Like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And we look forward to joining you on the next episode.